Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're here to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues, gut health, cancers, and lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on extreme weather events, wildfires. So let's jump in. You know, wildfires are defined as blazes that are uncontrolled and fueled by different types of weather, dry underbush, and wind, which burn land by the acres and take over everything in their paths in just a few minutes. Wildfires are also known as wildland fires, forest fires, vegetation fires, grass fires, peat fires, and in Australia, bushfires or hill fires. They're typically about 100,000 plus wildfires in the U.S. every year. And over 9 million acres of land have been destroyed due to treacherous wildfires. Climate warming from increasing greenhouse gas emissions is forecast to dramatically increase the risk of very large and very damaging wildfires over the next several years, such as those that we have been seeing and are seeing now in Australia. A new NOAA-funded study actually has given us a lot of research to this point. So what are some of the impacts of wildfires? Well, they take away homes as well as vegetation. Animals lose their lives. Trees and plants are gone. They certainly cause lots and lots of air pollution. Human lives are also lost in wildfires. Their health problems, jobs are lost, as well as companies and many industries are significantly affected. Insurance premiums soar sky high, and there'll be restrictions on many of our recreation areas. So here to help us learn more about this, our guest from what seems to have become ground zero for wildfires or bushfires in our world today, and that is Australia. We went there to find some experts who are dealing with a lot of what we're going to talk about right now. In actuality, we believe that Australia is a microcosm of the future if nothing is done to mitigate or slow climate change. Our guests today are Professor Philip Stewart and Dr. Christine Hoskin, both from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Philip Stewart is an associate lecturer with the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Queensland, and he's lectured on wildlife management, wildfire behavior, fire ecology, and other biological and conservation science issues. He has presented a number of papers at various national and international workshops covering topics from invasive species to wildfire and fire ecology. 
And Christine Hoskin is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Queensland, also in Brisbane. She is currently investigating the potential impacts of climate change on future agriculture to assist the natural resource management bodies in developing climate change adaptation plans. Dr. Hoskin has developed a model of where koalas and how they may be able to survive as climate change progresses and looking at whether or not they'll be able to survive extreme events. Welcome, Dr. Stewart, and welcome, Dr. Hoskin. We're very glad that you're here with us today. Okay. I want to start with Dr. Hoskins. Uh, We've seen that more than one billion mammals, birds, and reptiles across eastern Australia have been estimated to have been affected by the current catastrophic bushfires that you all are having. Can you tell us more about the impact of the bushfires on wildlife as well as plant life? Prior to these last very severe bushfires, very unique native animals have been subjected to a lot of human-caused pressures, um, which have really been around habitat loss primarily, the loss of their habitat. So as agriculture has advanced and as people have built houses, as Australia's population has grown, uh, more and more of their habitat has been cleared, um, leaving them literally nowhere to go. So climate change is probably now a very major threat that's sitting over the top of all those other threats, um, so particularly in New South Wales where the severe fires have just occurred, you know, big chunks of habitat for um, a lot of our unique animals such as koalas and gliders and kangaroos has been lost. It's just another threat on top of all the other threats that our native wildlife has been subjected to really since um, settlement, you know, 200 so, plus years ago. So you all are looking at the actual extinction of some wildlife and plant life as a result of these current fires. Is that true? Yes. Well, we've already the worst country in the world for extinctions. (laughs) Um, That's not something to be proud of. But yes, it's going to take some time um, to really determine how these extinctions. So where researchers have worked in an area of bush that has burned, for example, um, and someone has been studying a species in there, who may know that that was their only habitat and that they're already in very low numbers, might say, well, look, that animal has become extinct because it's completely burnt out. Um, Or might say that it's become locally extinct in that area, but hopefully um, it has survived in some other areas and may gradually come back into that bush as the bushland recovers from the fire. Um, But that's going to be a lot of long-term observation and monitoring to really determine how many extinctions or local extinctions um, have occurred. It's interesting, though, you said that Australia is one of the worst areas for extinctions. What I've heard is that you all, too, are one of the areas that has some of the most unique and ancient species as well. So maybe that's why you're number one for extinction, because you have so much more than others. But tell us a little bit, though, about all these ancient animals that you all have that the world may no longer see as a result of the fires. Yes, well, our marsupials in particular um, are very, very ancient, going back to, well, really evolving when Australia broke away. From now, you the want to tell our world. listeners, though, what are marsupials? Ah, sorry. So marsupials are animals with a pouch. So they carry their young in a little a little pouch um, on their stomach. On that their would abdomen. be kangaroos um, and... Yes, kangaroos, koalas, gliders, possums, uh, wombats, 
uh, and some of our smaller um, carnivorous marsupials even. The Tasmanian devil you may have heard of. I've heard of that uh, one. (laughs) Yes, well, they've been threatened a lot by disease um, at the moment. Um, So there's a big conservation effort happening in Tasmania to try and uh, protect them and isolate healthy ones and, and sort of recover their populations. So marsupials are very ancient. Um, their fossils go back well well over 30 million years. And they've been evolving here, you know, as I said, for, for a long time since Australia sort of broke away from the rest of the world back in, you know, the Gondwanan times. So um, that's what's made them really unique and why they don't occur anywhere else because they've evolved in isolation, really, in Australia. So they're very special and very unique and very ancient. They're the, they're the animals that are, can, are declining really just through land clearing and, and loss of their habitat. So Australia does seem to have a unique and a different ecosystem that allows for these ancient, as you say, and unique and different animals. And is the same true with vegetation? Yes, and in particular, a lot of these ancient animals have evolved to use or feed on these unique, um, this unique vegetation. So that's, that's the other issue. Um, if their vegetation goes, they have no food resources. There's um, a butterfly called the Richmond birdwing butterfly, which has been declining in numbers, declining in numbers through habitat loss. And it's a very beautiful, large, iridescent green uh, butterfly. And it is declining because of loss of this one food plant. It can only survive living on one food plant. Oh. Caterpillars have to eat a specific little birdwing vine um, that sort of is a very unremarkable vine that grows in the rainforests and on the rainforest margins. Uh, but as those vines have been cleared, um, this butterfly has declined because it literally can only eat that one ancient particular vine. Um, so uh, the female butterfly lays her eggs on those leaves. Okay, we're going to go to break now, and after break, we will come back and talk more about the different ways that a lot of the wildlife and plant life is being affected from, uh, by the fires and the resultant impacts. Thank you. We'll be right back after the break. Thank you for listening to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet. We want to give a shout out to our sponsors. That is EarthX, which convenes the world's largest environmental expo, conference and film festival in Dallas in Fair Park every year. This year it will be April 22nd through 26th. It will include environmental business leaders and speakers, exhibitors, films, and eco-virtual reality experiences. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings Magazine, the Green Healthy Unsustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Thank you sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to our episode on extreme weather events, wildfires, as we talk with two experts from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, which is now our microcosm or our laboratory for dealing with wildfires. We are with Professor Christine Hoskin and Professor Philip Stewart. Thank you all for being with us. Right before the break, Professor Hoskin, you were we were talking about the impact of the fires on the extinction of plant life as well as uh, animal life, and you were telling us how they were all interrelated. 
and how so many of the plant species as well as the animal species are are in danger. Uh, tell us more about this in, in terms of what you have seen in the past in wildfires and what you all are anticipating now in terms of the decrease in the biodiversity and the harm that's going to cause and how that matters to humans. Yes, well, human health really depends on um, healthy ecosystems. Ecosystem services are those um, natural assets that we all live on, such as clean air, uh, fresh water, um, and also um, plenty of wildlife to, to keep everything in balance. For instance, birds to eat insects that might be um, threatening a farmer's crop. So um, there are relationships everywhere you look. And as we, as we lose our, our bushland, uh, we're losing those ecosystem services as climate change advances. We're losing our clean air. Um, the droughts are causing rivers to run dry. Um, there's a township near where I'm at the moment, which is on level three water restrictions. They're having to have water trucked in um, because there's literally no water left in their river. Um, so the, all these things are definitely interlinked. It yes. reminds me of, you know, they, they teach this song to uh, elementary school children about how the, the leg bone's connected to the ankle bone and the ankle bone's connected to the knee bone and all. This is very true without fail in terms of our ecosystem and the unbreakable relationship with humans, which is also what our show is all about. So thank you for, for bringing that up. I want to talk to uh, Dr. Stewart a little bit, though, about fire management. In regard to fire management, uh, for the areas that were not burned, uh, what do you do? How do we look to preserve habitat biodiversity and, and species health there? Good question. Uh, the best way to look at maintaining a healthy system and the resilience of a system is to use fire. It, one of the biggest problems is that people tend to forget that Australia is a fire-prone continent and it actually needs fire to be able to survive and to ensure it's the continuation of its biodiversity and for evolution. The problem that we're experiencing here, though, is a change in the fire regime we have. So the frequency and the intensity uh, of fires that we're having in the area. So if you have an area that is unburnt, it really is a matter of when, not if it'll burn, but when it'll burn. It has to be burnt sometime. If you're looking at the Australian landscape and you look at forest systems and so on, except for our rainforests, which tend to be extremely sensitive, but they can still tolerate fire. It depends on the frequency, how many years it takes, you know, hundreds of years or whatever in between different fires. But a fire itself, the same as in America, is rather like giving forests a bath. It cleanses them of parasites and of pathogens and that type of thing, and they actually need it. So it is an important part of a management system. But the problem arises when? Well, the problems that we, we have is when we the management of the, the, the ecosystems, if they're not burned sufficiently. When one goes back into the history of Australia and we go back uh, 200, 250,000 years ago, for example, there were fires. We had fires here long before the, the um, Aborigines arrived, the first uh, colonists of the country. However, when the Aborigines were here about 65,000 years ago, up until the, the European arrival, they managed the landscape utilizing fire. They used a system that we call firestick agriculture or firestick farming. And they managed the ecosystem in such a way that it was a benefit to them and towards the animals, their sacred sites and so on. Very similar to what you have in, in the North America. So what you're talking tradition. about, though, is the controlled fires that people use. 
the control fires. Well, if we're not having, if we don't have sufficient burning or burn offs, then you're going to have an accumulation of fuel, and that's what we're seeing. So a combination of the, with climate change, we're seeing fires starting earlier, they're finishing later. We're seeing droughts, so we have an increase in fuel loads because of the, the, the heat stress that causes what we call hydro, um, hydrological uh, collapse of vegetation. So they lose their leaves, that's fine fuel. So fuel loads have increased. This has increased the intensity. The intensity increases, increases severity. The severity obviously causes the mortality of the vegetation, and that then causes an ecosystem shift or change. So the management needs to be fairly consistent. We need to look at fairly regular burns and being able to ensure that we have low fuel loads. So do you, are you saying or do you feel that some of the catastrophic events that you all are experiencing now could have or would have been avoided if there had been proper control burns? It's not something I would say. It, there are a lot of people out there who are working extremely hard to do control burns. There is legislation that often is a major problem in allowing organizations to be able to carry out their burns. They have to jump through a number of hurdles to ensure they meet that legislation that is written up by bureaucrats. So that is an issue. Further, the funding to be able to ensure that management is carried out, appropriate management of burning, is another issue. And then, of course, the people on the ground, the number of people that are available and that are employed to be able to do the job as well is another issue. So it's a combination of that combined with recently, the last 36 months, this extensive drought, an extended drought we've had that's been exacerbated by drought, has obviously increased the, the, the problem. So let's talk about, though, the intersection or the interaction of controlled burns and droughts. Where do those two meet? How do they affect each other? Well, if, if you're looking at droughts, the trouble with the drought is that it does cause xylem embolism, which is an issue with water transport through the plant, from the roots through to the leaves. And when there's not sufficient water, the trees, and particularly the, the uh, vegetation within Australia, the eucalypts and so on, they shed their leaves fairly rapidly and branches. So that increases your fuel loads. And natural fuel loads can increase two to threefold more with this type of system or drought that's occurring. And it's a natural system. It's a way of surviving to ensure that the adult plant can survive. So you're saying even though there is adequate and planned controlled burns, the droughts are going to exacerbate or still allow or cause the wildfires to happen? Absolutely. It, it, you, with, with droughts, you're still going to have fires. Even if you have burn-offs and controlled burns, you will still have fire. You're not going to stop fires. They will always be there. They will just be of a different intensity and hopefully more controllable. I would not say that I am stating that, the, that there are sufficient burn-offs. I think we are lacking and that we're not making our targets for the burn-offs throughout Australia. And in fact, we most probably need a paradigm shift in how we manage fires into the future. Why and is that and how is that? What type? Tell us about that paradigm shift you think that we need. We need to accept that fires are real and that they're an important part of our ecosystem. We also have to accept that there is climate change, not just natural climate change, but anthropogenic climate change. These are driving and exacerbating droughts and reduction in rainfall, and that we're only going to see greater intensity, greater severity fires if we're not proactive in what we do. And from that, I believe that we need, within the paradigm shift, to look at traditional burning. There's been 65,000 years of management of this continent, 
And you cannot say that the evolution of the vegetation has not adapted towards that. Therefore, we need to look at that and we need to look at how we can incorporate this type of management and burn-offs. Plus, we need to ensure that landowners themselves have to start to manage their land more proactively rather than reactively. A lot of the effort that we're seeing today in Australia is trying to put the fires out. Um, so it's really, uh, we're, we're treating a, a symptom but not the cause. I gotcha. Last question for both of you all, because we only have about a minute before we have to close out this section. And that is, how can, and we ask the same question to everyone, how can ordinary people in their everyday lives drive solutions to the wildfires that are causing so much devastation to our, our land and your country right now? Dr. Hoskin, you want to go first on that? It's very difficult because the um, we have to somehow balance burn-offs and uh, getting rid of dry fuel load with, with what the, the wildlife needs. So we can't denude the whole landscape of habitat to prevent fires because then there'll be nowhere for our wildlife to go and their habitat's already diminishing. Uh, but I agree that if we look back towards the you know First Nations people's fire practices uh, and employed them, I think that would be good. They burnt on a smaller patchy scale, not so hot, um, so that habitat for the wildlife could still be there. And I think we need to find that balance. I think that's difficult. In these past fires also, um, many areas that had been burnt off only a couple okay. of years ago still Dr. Hoskins, to the wildfire. And I hate no to, difference. Thank you so much. I hate to end Not there, me. but we have to go. So I thank both of you all so much for being with us and helping us to understand a lot more about wildfires from where you sit and helping to sensitize us that this is going to be our future too if something is not done very soon and very quickly uh, with regards to climate change. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Bernice, for having me. Thank you. We'll be right back after the break with our second part on wildfires, looking specifically at the health impacts. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're back today with the second part of our episode on wildfires. Now, as the 2017 wildfires in California, Oregon, and other Western states have revealed, smoke from wildfires is harmful to health. Many residents near the fires have experienced respiratory distress and other health problems from breathing in the toxic smoke for days and weeks at a time during some of the fires. Wildfires are increasing in intensity and size and contributing to impaired air quality for people living near or downwind of the fires. But while smoke from the wildfires is a threat to health, and even survival in some cases, there are also many unknowns about the health effects of smoke from wildfires. For example, is all the smoke the same or is some more toxic than others based on the type of trees and vegetation burned? Or what are the health effects from smoke in the flaming stage of a wildfire compared to the smoldering stage? And then how does smoke age over time? And are the health effects different? and who is most susceptible. One of the main components of smoke is particle pollution, which is regulated air pollutant. 
wildfires, which include wildfires and prescribed fires or bushfires, as they call it in Australia, now account for 40 percent of the total pollutant matter emitted in this country, making it a major source of pollutants, which causes lung and health problems as well. And in addition to this, carbon monoxide and oxides of nitrogen, sulfur dioxide, and other organic compounds are also there to be dealt with. The fine airborne particles may have also very detrimental health effects because they can penetrate very, very deep into the human lungs. The World Health Organization has identified a link between exposure to fine and ultrafine particles and hospital admissions also, as well as visits to emergency and outpatient departments and mortality due to respiratory and cardiovascular diseases during wildfire episodes. And again today, we are going to reach over to Australia as we focus in on the health effects of wildfires. And as we mentioned before, this is because we believe that Australia is really a microcosm of what the world is going to experience in terms of wildfires and floods also, as we learned last week. And so we want to focus in because we feel like they've got some experts and a lot of knowledge because they are experiencing right now things that we feel that the rest of the world might if we do not do something very quickly to mitigate or stop the climate change. And today we're going to key in on the impacts of the mental health relationship to the wildfires. And here to help us explore and unpack this is Professor Justin Kennedy. Professor Kennedy is a professor of psychology, and he's with the Faculty of Health and Behavioral Sciences of the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. He is a clinical psychologist, researcher, and disseminator of evidence-based practice in clinical health psychology, behavioral medicine, and health service delivery. His work is focused primarily and is engaged with health users, providers, and industry. Welcome, Professor Kennedy. We're very glad you could be with us today. Thank you. As we have been looking into the issues surrounding health and particularly mental health as it relates to extreme weather events, and in this case, wildfires, we keep hearing the term eco-anxiety used more and more. Can you tell us a little bit about this in regards to the wildfires or brush fires, as you call them, in Australia? Oh, okay. So, um, eco-anxiety is a relatively new term. It's really talking about chronic or severe anxiety related to um, how people relate with the environment. Um, so it's kind of a chronic fear of environmental doom. Uh, it's not a, a psychiatric disorder. It's not something where really, you know there's been any kind of diagnostic uh, criteria for it, but it's, uh, it's something that sort of uh, people are aware of, professionals are aware of. There's two ways in which it kind of emerges. One is through um, concern about um, immediate, immediate effects of climate change, so things like following um, big disasters like the fires in, in Australia, and also concerns about the sort of gradual effects of climate change, you know, uh, thinking about uh, changes in sea level, uh, changes in, in weather patterns, et cetera. So uh, those two kind of immediate and and gradual effects have an impact on a person's mental health and, and it affects that, that eco-anxiety. 
A couple of things, Professor Kennedy, in that regards. How does it manifest itself? How do you know? How can you tell? How did anybody ever figure out that this eco-anxiety was a thing? Well, people who had concerns about the environment also had experiences of other uh, expressions of anxiety, um, fears, depression, uh, and mood uh, that was I guess, negative, associated with the thoughts and, and feelings they were having. Also, they seem to be kind of exacerbated by particular things like media coverage, by seeing or hearing people around them, friends, talking about this and focusing on, on these kinds of topics. And also, I guess that many of us actually have some anxiety about these uh, sorts of things. But when it starts to impact on a person's kind of life where they start to change what they normally do or be restricted by what, they, uh, by what they're thinking about, by these concerns uh, in terms of what they would normally do, then they might go and talk to someone about it or, or feel uh, as though they need to um, seek some help. Have there been any studies or do you know of any studies that have been able to quantify specific incidences related to anxiety after, say, an event. For example, after, I know you all have large floods there too, or even after some of the wildfires, are you seeing a higher incidence of people committing crimes or people going for psycho, psychological help or anything like that? Well, we haven't seen uh, committing crimes, no. <laughs> But, Having um, babies? Uh, I'm told that they, that happens after <laughs> floods or something. Or <laughs> well, there are losers, but that's uh, that's quite a different story. It is. That's not anxiety. Um, no, we know that from where we've seen, where we've followed up populations after major disasters like the, the floods, uh, that there is a, a, a spike in, in distress that's related to the floods or the, or the disaster itself. Same thing with the wildfires that we've had in Australia. Those relationships are pretty clear and the kinds of things that mitigate them uh, seem to be related to uh, the severity of the, the disaster as well as potentially what, what sorts of things support that person in the environment after the disaster. Okay. Are, are there any specifics or can you tell us about what you are seeing in terms of the mental health issues or anxiety from this current wildfire or bushfire episode you all are having there in Australia now? Uh, look, it's too early. Too early? To okay. Say. Yeah. I think that what you would expect is that there would be mental health problems, of course. Um, the extent of them, uh, I would say, given what had happened, it's going to be higher than one, one would normally expect, particularly in places like Malakuta where there was a mass evacuation. Is that the place where they um, had to move the folks out to the beaches and everything that we saw on television? Yes, yes. Well, one would expect it to be higher there than, than other places um, or uh, other situations. But exactly how much, is, it's hard to know. The, the problem with disasters like these is that pretty much everyone is, uh, to some degree, distressed after them, uh, naturally. But uh, most people uh, tend to kind of... Uh, adjust and adapt and are more or less resilient after these kinds of things. It's hard to know that if you see someone who's distressed immediately following a disaster, that they're going to continue to have that. 
Okay, well, we'll talk a little bit more about this on the other side after the break. Thank you, Professor Kennedy. We'll be right back after the break. Thank you for listening to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We want to give a shout out to our sponsors. That is EarthX, which convenes the world's largest environmental expo, conference, and film festival, promoting environmental awareness and impacts. The expo includes environmental business leaders and speakers, exhibitors, films, and eco-virtual reality experiences. EarthX 2020 will be held April 22nd through 26th of this year in Dallas at Fair Park. And our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, our episode on extreme weather events, and we're talking about wildfires. And here with us is Professor Justin Kennedy from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. We thought we'd go right to the experts for this. Thank you again for being with us, Professor Kennedy. Again, we were talking about, I don't know if I want to call it phenomena, but certainly this very definite occurrence of eco-anxiety. And I think you mentioned, as we all can agree, that there's going to be a lot of eco-anxiety and other types of anxiety after things settle down from Australia's current fire event. I want to talk, though, a little bit more about the long-term impacts or the long-term manifestations of this eco-anxiety or the mental health uh, effects of these wildfires. What are you seeing in that regards? And again, have there been any studies on the long-term impact? Well, uh, first, it's probably a good idea to draw a distinction between the kind of this, this concerns that people have about ecological effects and ecological disasters and uh, the um, immediate effects that disasters have on communities and individuals. So, you know, I think that those two things I think may be mixed up a little bit um, by people, but I think they're they're worth considering separately. Certainly, the uh, in the case of the impact of disasters directly on people, then we know that there are lots of long-term uh, consequences for those who actually continue to have uh, mental health problems. Because, as I mentioned previously, not everybody does. There's a there's a general kind of tendency for people to recover. And there's, you know, pretty good resilience mostly in communities. As you have more significant impacts on particular communities, like I mentioned with the Malakuta where there was a the evacuation, there may be more problems. In populations where you see that ongoing problem, you might see things such as depression, uh, substance use, you know, social isolation, family, interpersonal problems. You might even see uh, ultimately... Uh, that kicking into physical effects such as changes in cardiovascular fitness. Yeah, I those Im- sorts of things are, the, are things that have been seen uh, after after uh, um, disasters. Because as we talked about in the first part of the show, uh, 
the impacts of wildfires, I guess, depending upon the severity, can just totally impact every last facet of a person's life. You know, from taking away their homes, the wildlife, the vegetation, their jobs, can't get insurance. It can be all-encompassing. So I, I do have to think that that's going to impact folks mentally. However, another interesting thing, though, that occurs to me is... In many cases, there's been documentation or manifestation that events such as this can also be impacted and bring about more communal or societal changes where they actually pull together. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, that's true. Um, And in fact, we know that that connection with community seems to be protective uh, for people who are uh, exposed to uh, disasters and that it's also possible that where those kinds of physical connections might be available before a disaster hits, the disaster often breaks those down physically because it destroys the, the physical infrastructure. Oh. Um, but communities actually pull together. They often pull together and bring those, those connections back into line again and maybe even bring people into that connection again who, who weren't previously, who had been more isolated prior to those uh, to the disaster and become more, more engaged with the community afterwards because the community is actually actively seeking to support individuals. It's, it's really a nice thing. It's a great thing. It can happen. That the communal dynamics can be a healing force is what you're saying. Absolutely, yes. Mm. It's a great thing that does uh, and can happen. Okay. And that brings me to really my next question, and that is, how do we attend to mental health during and after natural disasters, such as the bushfires? This is probably the worst of the bushfires that you all have had, but I know that you have them very often. So this is not something uh, new, yeah. just a lot. It's just a lot more of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that we've, we're always learning. Every time one of these kinds of things happen, we, we try and and improve on on what we did previously, but we, you know, so it's ne- there's never a perfect solution. We're always caught on the hop. That's the nature of a disaster, and we're always trying to build on what we knew, uh, what we learned from the previous time. But um, so, what have we learned though? We need, well, there's two things we need to, to think about. First is we need to be aware of of the when, uh, because support in a disaster needs to take account of the fact that there's there's a time factor involved. So you need to provide timely, immediate care for individuals, but that doesn't have to be in the form of, you know, psychotherapy or that kind of thing. It's just largely like a, a form of support. I think there's a, a term that you may be familiar with called psychological first aid. That, no, I'm, I'm not familiar just, just with that one. Sim- okay, so sim- it's simply... Uh, um, having somebody there who, who is actually prepared to listen or provide or facilitate somebody's basic care. So making sure that they've got, they feel safe and they've got food and, and shelter, those kinds of things. Is that something that you are seeing being done in Australia? That's been done routinely, yeah. And you'll find that done pretty routinely in most places in, in the world 
where there is a disaster and there are resources to do so. So it'll it'll happen in the United the, the States. The psychological part, too. Now, I know that in most cases you've got the Red Cross as well as local authorities that are going to rush to the place of that disaster with the immediate support, mm. food, water, etc. But you're telling me that many mm. places are also intentionally adding the psychological first aid to that mix as well? Yes, and that's a pretty standard approach with uh, with Red Cross, for example, uh, is that they do provide that kind of let, that that uh, a support person, not 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 intervention, just just providing that support as the person needs it, and it's not foisted on individuals. No, no one's forced to have it, but it's available for for people uh, who are. Uh, really experiencing the impact, the psychological immediate impacts of, of disaster. I am very glad um, to hear that because that's often undiscussed, as is the trauma of these events often undiscussed. So that is a, a good thing. So that you're saying authorities, localities, really as a marshal, the water and the evacuation procedures and, and tools and implements that the psychological first aid or psychological care needs to be a big part of that as well. Yeah, yeah, and most of the disaster agencies are aware of this as a really part of, of that immediate response. And also what, what happens afterwards is, is really important because as you get past that immediate effect or the immediate impact, you want to think about, well, there's a short-term kind of uh, post-disaster where where individuals might need actually a bit bit more counselling, focusing on their actual mental health needs. Exactly who needs that uh, is is a matter that uh, is a bit harder to identify. So people need to be need to either self-identify or the, or they need to be identified by the community. You know that 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 may may benefit from this help. Thank you so much. We're going to need to wrap up. I have to think, too, that maybe these e- events and extreme weather events and wildfires could also cause something that looks like or, or, or seems like PTSD. But last question that we ask all of our guests, and that is how do we transform this collective grief into collective action to make change for the future? What can ordinary people do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions to this very briefly. Tell us. Okay. Well, they can actually get involved. They can do things like getting educated, uh, actually taking uh, action, positive action will help to overcome any feelings of anxiety and powerlessness. Uh, focus on on uh, what are the things that are actually positively happening in the community? What What are the good things that you can be doing looking at positive things that are occurring and, and being part of that. Um, foster and maybe a stronger connection with nature. Right. That's all good. And then I think, too, the last thing you had mentioned before, and that is really leaning in to the communal aspects of pulling the community together. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being with us, Dr. Kennedy. Hopefully we'll talk with you again in the future. Thank no you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplace, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. 
Thank you for listening.